We get set in our own ways, don't we? Come on, be honest, you do. Our expectations are often based on our own fears, aren't they? We're afraid of men, so when we pray, we ask them to be removed or destroyed. Ever pray prayers like that? Or we're so afraid of our circumstances that we want them removed or ourselves removed from them. Isn't that the truth? We don't think, Lord, take me through this. It's going to be glorious. We all know that scripture. When you see a trial coming, jump for joy. But I don't think any of us are quite there. But I think that there are times that we pray more about our plans than about the issue. Our expectations are so often based on our limitations. So we direct God to our human resources. Lord, use this money and multiply it in the bank so when I get my statement, it says million dollars more. You know, we're always praying according to our resources. Use my strength. Use my abilities. Use what I have. And God sometimes says, do you mind if I don't? If I go a little beyond that? Yeah, I think about the disciples. They ran out of fish and bread. They had, to, they had to get it from a kid. They had nothing. But we limit God so many times to our human resources. We come up with plans and schemes for God. Doable. Doable. Ones that we think we could see. Lord, here's a possibility here. This is the way I think you should go. You know, I already have this, and if you just do this and that, and here's the scheme for God that is totally in the realm of possibilities. When our plans fail, or God doesn't work according to our ways, we are tempted to give up all hope, aren't we? Well, hmm. You know, Lord, it's just, this is a tough one. We're kind of like Martha. I still believe that you're Jesus. I still believe you're the Son of God. You just totally disappointed me. We're disappointed, we're angry, and we miss, we miss everything that God is doing. And we're left out at times when he does work. I think of this story in 2 Kings 6 through 7, when there was a famine in Samaria, and the king sent an ambassador to Elisha, and the king followed behind, And when they got to Elisha's house, Elisha said, tomorrow at this time, the famine is totally going to be over. God is going to work. And the man upon whom the king leaned, the king's advisor, said, if God should open the windows of heaven, should such a thing be? And Elisha said, you will see it with your eyes, but you won't partake in it. And as you know, the next day, God God went beyond the natural realm. What happened is the Assyrians had this huge campsite filled with all these soldiers. It was menacing. Other kings had gathered together. It was an immense army. And these lepers who were outside the city wall said, you know what? If we stay here, we're going to die. And if we go into that camp of the Assyrians, we're going to die. So either way, the choice is die or die. So let's just take our chances. They went down to the Assyrian camp and were told that the Lord made it sound like a great army was coming. And the Assyrians all fled so far away and left all their food, their horses, animals, clothing, money, 
They left it all. And when the lepers got into the camp of the Assyrians, they said, Oh my goodness, this is fantastic. They went from tent to tent, finding it empty but just supplied with food. Empty of men and soldiers, but supplied with food. But after glutting themselves for a while, they began to feel really guilty when they thought about the people in Samaria that were still starving. So they went back to Samaria and they said, This is what's going on in the camp of Assyria. Go and see. The king said, I think it's a trick. The advisor said, I know it's a trick. So they sent some men on the remaining horses in Samaria down, and the men came back and said, no, it's not a trek. We followed it all the way out to the river, and we found Euphrates River. They're gone. They have fled completely. And so they decided to open the doors of the city and let the people go out. Well, the advisor was trying to organize the people, and he got trampled as the people rushed out to the food. In other words, he saw it with his eyes, but he didn't get to partake. But you see, God is always doing the unexpected. And if we only live and look in the realm of expectations, we will be so disappointed. We're told about this danger in Luke chapter 7. Jesus said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? You went out to see John the Baptist because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. But earlier, John had questioned Jesus' divinity. Why? Because John was in prison and he couldn't see what Jesus was doing. So Jesus reminded him of all the things he was doing. The blind seeing, the lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised, the poor having the gospel preached to them. When we set our eyes on our own ways and our own expectations, we will miss the greater picture. We will lose divine expectation and begin to live in the natural realm, which is miserable, rather than the divine realm, which is glorious. And we will be constantly discouraged. I was talking to my oldest brother the other day, and I said to him, you know what? It dawned on me today that I live in a world where the supernatural intersects with the natural. In this world, there are prophets, apostles, teachers, pastors, saints, and no ordinary people. That's the realm we're called to live in, a realm with no ordinary people. When we interact with other people, we are either interacting with saints or sinners, and neither of those are ordinary And God wants to work beyond our means. We live in a world of possibilities. God makes the impossible possible and opens up all sorts of possibilities to us. As he said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I like the first word, behold. In other words, God is saying to Jeremiah, get your eyes off yourself and off your circumstances and look at me. Look at me. Did you ever do that to your kids? Look at me. Just look at me. You know, I I had a daughter. I remember she was in a full panic because of a sunburn. She was like, "Ah!" totally out of control. And I remember just grabbing her going, look at me. This is solar cane. You're going to be all right. It's got a hollow vera in it. He'll calm down. But, you know, sometimes we get, oh, it's terrible. We're going down. And God has to say, behold, 
says, I am the Lord. Lord, I am Yahweh. I am the sufficient, the all-sufficient, the great I am. Whatever your need is, I am. Whatever you need, I am. We must realize that we are dealing with the almighty God. We are not dealing with our husbands. They've got lots of limitations. We are not dealing with ourselves. We've got even more limitations. We are beholding the almighty God. And he says, I'm the God of all flesh. I am the creator. I put this all in motion. I created every heart. I created every life. I created every star in the sky. I was just reading this morning about this new microscope that all the scientists can't wait to get. It's called the Kepler's, um, sorry, telescope. Bigger. But the telescope, and with this Kepler telescope, they are seeing new planetary systems in the sky. They're seeing more stars that resemble the sun. And all of a sudden, the universe is bigger and grander than they ever realized. Oh my goodness, that is our God. He conceives suns. He conceives planets and universes, planetary systems in order. Our God conceives DNA, eyes and hands and muscles, and skeletal systems. You know, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist in England, he said, you know, really, the, the eye is a very um, simple organism, you know, not, not anything special. Yeah, well, you make one. <laughs> because, you see, it's a concept that man has never come up with. They are only copying what they see when they do a camera. They are copying what God has already done. Now, the early church had a big problem. It was an overwhelming problem. This problem was greater than any opponent that we have faced here in the Western world. This was big, and it had a name, and the name was Saul of Tarsus. He was violent He was a Roman citizen, which made him untouchable by most Jews. He had the sanction and the protection of Rome behind him. Not only that, but he had all authority from high priest. He had religious and civic authority. He was zealous. He was energetic. He was relentless. Nothing seemed to thwart, stop, hamper discourage Saul of Tarsus. He would go storming into houses without prior notice and arrest men and women. We're told that he created havoc every place he went, arresting people, forcing them to blaspheme. And he was exceedingly, by his own terms, as he recounts his testimony in Acts 26.11, exceedingly enraged against believers. And because of him, the church was forced to scatter. He was the one who consented or actually drove them on 
was encouraging the death of Stephen. How would you pray for a man like that in your life? I've got a couple of suggestions. Send him to an early grave. Paralyze him from head to toe. And make him unable to talk too. Destroy him. Move him to Siberia. You know, that is That's the way I'm tempted to pray about the opponents and the things in my life. I doubt that any of those early believers thought about, Lord, save him. Turn him around. It must have seemed beyond the realm of possibility to think of Saul as anything other than what he was. Because Saul was entrenched in who he was. And he was self Righteous. I think there's no one harder to reach than someone who cannot be wrong and thinks they're always right. It is a good thing that in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus added this, and I think of this as the, the most, one of the most important clauses. When he says, Thy will be done on earth in heaven. James said that we need to add that to all our prayers, if the Lord wills. Lord, you do your will, because our limited expectations and vision will limit our prayers, limit our faith, and limit our activity for Jesus. We want to behold the Lord God, with whom nothing is impossible. God is always doing the unexpected. Have you noticed that in your life? It's like, this is not the way I would have done it. Okay, but this is not the way I would have done it. In Habakkuk 1.5, God says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though I were told you. He said, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that you never even thought about. That wouldn't even come into your mind. And when I tell you, you're going to go, really? Are you sure? But God says, I know what I'm doing. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, I'm sure you're familiar with this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God thinks bigger than we do. As we said earlier, he thinks of planetary systems. He thinks of skeletal systems. He thinks of atomic particles and mountains and billy goats and dinosaurs. All of those things God conceives and brings them to pass. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul, quoting from Isaiah, says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it hasn't even entered your mind or heart what God's got ahead for you. So you need to expect the unexpected. But know this, that the unexpected from God is good. The unexpected from God is a better way. Oswald Chambers said, and so send I you, 
God always chooses the best way. If there was a better way, God would have done it that way. Expect the unexpected. So what does God do with the early church problem? He transforms him. He transforms him. He absolutely changes him from head to toe. Think about it. At this time, Paul is stronger than ever. Jerusalem has become too small. I've already created havoc there. Where can I create havoc now? I mean, this is his mindset. He's conquered Jerusalem. Now he wants to conquer other places. He has the authority to go to Damascus and now create havoc in Damascus. And he's on the way with his confederates. These are men who are also stirred up like, yeah, go, go, get them, get them, kill, kill, kill. That's their mindset. And they're very near Damascus. They're ready to enter. The clock is ticking for the believers in Damascus. They know he's coming. And suddenly, oh, don't you love that word? Suddenly, without warning. Now, Paul has burst into houses suddenly without warning, but now God is going to burst into Saul's life. And we're told that a bright light shines around him from heaven, and Saul falls to the ground. Oh, that immediate humbling. He cannot stand in the light of Jesus Christ. And a voice speaks to him, and he alone can discern what the voice is saying. Others hear, but cannot discern. Some people say this is because God was speaking in Hebrew, and these were Hellenist Jews who spoke Greek that were with him. And Paul, being a scholar, would know Hebrew. We don't know for sure. But we know that Paul heard the voice, the men heard the voice, but they couldn't discern. I wonder if in Paul's, Saul's mind, as he began to think over these circumstances, if it reminded him at all of what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 at the Tigris River. There, when Daniel was an ambassador, suddenly the presence of God came, and we're told that the men with him fled away. They didn't know what they were hearing or seeing or feeling. They just had to get out of there. And Daniel was left alone, and he fell on his face trembling, and he had a vision from God. But the voice speaks to Saul, and it calls him by name twice. Now, in the Hebrew, when a word was repeated, it would mean the completion of something. You no doubt remember the verse in Isaiah 26, he will keep him in perfect peace, and the perfect peace whose mind is set on him. In the Hebrew, it's actually he will keep him in shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. So when God is saying, Saul, Saul, he is identifying him completely. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you thoroughly. I know your heart. I know your motivations. I know your background. I know what you've done. I know what you're planning on. I know you thoroughly. And he says, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus so completely identifies with his people. Do you understand that Jesus is saying, he who touches you is touching me? In fact, he said, he actually said, don't take it personally. It's all about me. 
It's not about you, but we take it so personally. <laughs> it must be my crooked teeth. You know, we just think, you know, there's got to be some reason that they're picking on me. Bad hair day, I don't know. But Jesus is saying, don't take it personally. This is about me. But I take it personally because it's about you. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus thoroughly identifies with the persecuted church. And we see that this is so much bigger than Saul. That Saul asks, who are you, Lord? Or the Greek word here is kurios, which is the same as Lord, Yahweh, the I am, the all-sufficient one. Saul is already willing and ready to bend the knee. There's already a change in attitude, submissive. He's already saying, uncle, I give. I give. This is greater than anything Saul has ever seen or come up against. And Jesus identifies himself, I am Jesus. He could have said, this is Jesus. Or he could have just said Jesus. But do you notice he says, I am Jesus. Lord Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. I love this. This is such an alteration from what we've seen before. Suddenly it's, who's in trouble now? Guess who just became the victim? And Jesus identifies Saul. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. I've seen it all. Now, goats, this was a stick that shepherds used that had um, nails coming out of it. And they would gently prod the sheep a little harder. And remember, they're woolly. They're not feeling this too bad. But to get them in the right direction, especially the stubborn sheep, they would use these goats to get the sheep where they want So Jesus is saying, I've been trying to get you where you're supposed to go. And you have fought it and fought me and fought my people and my church all the way. Saul had been under conviction. He had been reading the scriptures but denying what he read. He had been seeing the bold testimony of believers but denying what he saw. He had been hearing the proclamation of believers. He had heard Stephen's irresistible sermon on Jesus, but he had been denying what he heard. He had been feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but denying what he felt. And perhaps this was behind his blind rage. He was in a rage because spiritually he could not see, he could not feel. He could not hear. But God knows what is going on in the mind of Saul and in the heart of Saul, just as he knows everything that's going on in the mind of men and the heart of men. I think those who scream the loudest are often those who are under the greatest goading by the Holy Spirit. We find that Saul is now trembling and astonished. This is such a divine encounter such a powerful intervention by Jesus Christ. And Saul immediately volunteers for service. Lord, kurios, master, what do you want me to do? Here is an immediate change of plans. This, all of a sudden, those papers that he has, that authority from Jerusalem means absolutely nothing. 
nothing. It's over suddenly. A change of plans. Saul is no longer in charge of his destiny. And he has no power against the church of Jesus Christ. Because he has no power against the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus orders Saul to go into the city and await further instruction. It's almost like Jesus says, go in the city and I'll deal with you later. Have you ever done that to one of your children? Go to your room and I'll deal with you later. And that's exactly what he's saying. Go and I'll deal with you later. In the meantime, three days later, God begins to speak to a brother in the Lord, Ananias. No doubt Ananias is on Saul's hit list in Damascus. But Ananias has a vision in which the Lord speaks to him, and he calls to him, and Ananias says this, Here I am, Lord. Now see, Ananias, before the Lord even told him what was going on, he's volunteering for service. I'm not like that. I'm like, yes? You called? (laughs) Yeah, so it says, can you do me a favor? I'm always, what? I never say yes. I have people I call, I say, can you do me a big, terrible, awful favor? Yes. Thinking, that was not wise. You don't know this favor yet. It's big. But Ananias has got this kind of relationship with the Lord. He trusts the Lord. There's all this threat, but here's this enormous trust for the Lord. He is volunteering for whatever God has. This is so important because Ananias is going to put God's instruction above his own apprehensions and even above his common sense. Oh, ouch. I hope that hurts you as much as it hurts me. I have found that the way with God often goes beyond my common sense and beyond all my fears. I have found that God is telling me to walk through the valley of death, to walk right into my fears, to go into the lion's den, to go into the fiery furnace, trusting him. I want you to know for Ananias, what God is going to require is no less than a lion's den. No less than a fiery furnace. He is going to walk ahead boldly into the very thing that he fears. The very thing that has sent the church in Jerusalem into a panic and now is putting the believers in Damascus in a panic. You know, I want to say this. When I react in fear, it's always bad. I've never had a good fear reaction. I wish I had. But you know, if Brian gets too close to the car next to us when he's driving, I don't go, honey, <laughs> love you, little close. I go, oh, what are you doing? We're so close, we're going to die, you know? I wish I didn't. That's a true confession. He's actually a pretty good driver, unless he tries to eat while he's driving. But you know, My reaction of fear, panic, sends me into chaos. It's never, ever positive. My second reaction, after I've measured it before the goodness of the Lord, is so much better. So if you're calling and it's a scary thing, hang up right away and don't get my reaction. Then call me back 10 minutes later after I've gotten the reaction in the hands of the Lord. Much safer. But my fear reaction is never right. This is why Ananias has to push beyond his fears. This is why he cannot allow fear to dominate, because if he allows fear to dominate, what's going to happen? He's not going to be a part of this great work that God's going to do, is he? 
He can't be a player in what God is doing. If Ananias chooses to stay in his comforts, I don't feel very comfortable with that. You know, so many times, you know, you'll ask people, here's a ministry opportunity. I don't feel comfortable with that. What part? People. You know, that is ministry. If Ananias settles in his comforts and what he doesn't fear and stays in that place, nothing notable, nothing extraordinary is going to happen. But God calls him and instructs him in a vision to go to the house of Judas in Damascus on a street called Straight. Very specific directives. And there he's to ask for Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus. That was the other place right next door. Don't go to that house. Don't go to the Tarsus house. Go to the one in Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. is that amazing? You know, before God said, behold me. Now he's saying, behold, I'm staring at Saul right now. And he's praying. Do you know God beholds when we're praying? That he sees us when we're praying? God is looking at Saul. And this is what is telling Ananias he's safe. Why? Because right now I've got him on the line and we're conversing. Right now I'm hearing him speak to me. And it's good. And it's safe. And I've got him exactly where I want him. Call waiting. Behold is a word that means to look and to consider. And at this time, Saul is having a vision. And he's having a vision of Ananias. Saul is waiting for Ananias because in his vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming to him and laying his hands on him. Ananias has apprehensions, but they do not stand in the way of obedience. Isn't it wonderful how we can be honest with God? Okay, God, I'll do it, but I'm, I'm really scared. <laughs> Lord, um, I know this is what you're telling me to do, but I've got apprehension. I've told this to you before, but I was reminded of it this morning when I was in my devotional reading in Luke chapter 12. But I remember where it says a house divided against itself will not stand. I remember a time when my daughter's life was in jeopardy because of her drug abuse. And I knew she was doing drugs and Brian was not seeing it. We had this argument. He said, you didn't grow up with drugs. I grew up in a house with drugs. I know drugs. And I said, maybe I know drugs because I didn't grow up in a house with drugs. I mean, it was bad. We were... We were it was, we were really at odds because I thought we were losing our daughter and I was in a panic. And we both had different ideas on how to win our daughter. And I've told you this before, but I went down to the beach and I parked at 9th Street in Huntington Beach and I was so angry. I was so mad. I was in such a state of panic that I walked all the way from 9th Street to the Newport Pier and it went really fast. And I complained all the way there. And at the pier, God says to me, you need to submit to Brian. See, because all the way to the Newport Pier, I was just complaining, and I was, I was mad, and I walked so fast. Then after getting the word that I had to submit to Brian, because the Lord said, Cheryl, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But if you will submit to Brian, even though it doesn't look like the way it should go, even though this goes beyond your understanding, and you're walking into all your panic, I will save your daughter. And finally, 
From the Newport Pier to the river jetty, I finally submitted to God. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I, I, I got goads in my life too. But at the jetty, I said, all right, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I will do this. Then I had to walk all the way to Ninth Street. And I remember going, make it just to that pole. Now one more pole. And when I got home, you would think all the fight was out of me. But I got a lot of fight. And I said to Brian, look, I want you to be quiet for the next hour. And I'm gonna, I want you to know there's a happy ending to this. But I said, when I'm finished telling, talking to you, I will totally submit and do whatever you say. But for one hour, I want to tell you all the reasons I think you're dead wrong and everything you're telling me to do is stupid, stupid, stupid. But nevertheless, God has told me I have to submit. And you know, this is my husband. He is so calm. He smiles. Go ahead. He watched me the whole time, just smiling. And he said, okay, we're going to love that girl. And we're going to pretend like she's not doing anything wrong. And we're just going to love on her. And a month later, she came and confessed everything. We got her in drug rehab. And that girl is so walking with Jesus today. She's a miracle. May I say, that is not the way I would have done it. It's not the way I would have done it at all. God has a better way. Expect the unexpected. But Ananias says his doubts. Lord, I've heard a lot of bad things about Saul. My paraphrase. I've heard about much harm that he's done to the saints in Jerusalem. And Lord, he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest me and all who call upon Jesus' name. But God is unfazed. He says, go. Go because he's a chosen vessel of mine. Go because he will bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Go because I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Go. Go. God has plans for Saul of Tarsus. Ananias, in obedience, goes to Judah's house. He finds Saul. By this time, Saul has been blind for three days, unable to eat or drink. And Ananias lays hands on him. And look at this faith. Brother Saul. I don't think I would have used the word brother yet. I would have to see some proof because my ways are not God's ways. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting that Ananias knows his testimony? Now, in the text, we're not told that God told Ananias, on the road here, I encountered him. But obviously he must have because he says, the Lord Jesus that you met on the road, he sent me. He's the one. And immediately what appeared to be scales fell from Saul's eyes. There is a passage in Galatians where um, Paul says, look what big letters I've written. And then he says to the Galatians, at one point you were willing to gouge out your eyes and give them to me. Some people believe that Paul was left, Saul, was left with an eyesight problem from this encounter. That he could never see as he saw before. Because God wanted him to see spiritually and not in the natural realm. That's just a theory. 
But Saul arose, was immediately baptized, immediately identified with Jesus Christ, full immersion with Jesus Christ. He strengthened, he eats, and then he spends some time with the disciples in Damascus. Immediately he begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Why? Because he's encountered the very Son of God. He knows who he is. Those who hear him are absolutely amazed because they know his testimony. They're saying, wait, isn't he the one who tried to wipe out the church of Jesus? And now he's boldly proclaiming Jesus? What is going on? Saul increases in more strength. And now Saul is a threat to the other side. He confounds the Jews in Damascus. They have nothing to say back to him. They can't resist. They can't refute. And he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows the word of God. He becomes such a threat that they want to destroy him. So the disciples have to let him out because these Hellenists are watching the city gates day and night to try to trap him and kill him. So they have to let Saul down through the wall in a basket. You might say by this time it was a basket case. And Saul comes to Jerusalem, and he tries to join himself to the disciples, but they're naturally scared. They're scared. Isn't that great? The disciples, you know, Ananias, he's like, yes, okay, Lord, I'll do it. But here's the disciples. These are like the strong guys, the head of the church. Uh, I don't think we're ready to meet them yet. (laughs) Let's give it a few days. And they're not willing to join themselves with Saul. There's some fear. They saw firsthand the havoc. They saw firsthand the persecution. They saw firsthand the stoning of Stephen. They're not quite ready for this yet. But dear Barnabas, that we'll get to know a little bit later, who is a Levite, he takes Saul in and he gives the testimony of Saul. He says, no, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you why he's safe. Let me tell you what God has done in his life. And so Saul meets with the apostles. And then he remains with them for a time going in and out. And in Jerusalem, he is so boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus and disputing with the Hellenists that he becomes a threat in Jerusalem. So the disciples sneak him down to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. And we're told that peace ensues in the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Suddenly doors are thrown open. Closed doors are suddenly open. Peace where there was a storm. Comfort where there was fear. Everything has suddenly changed. No doubt there's a renewed awe of what God alone can do. So they're walking in the reverence, the deep reverence of the Lord. They're realizing, ah, Lord God, there is nothing too hard for you. And they're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God will deal with all our problems in his glorious way. Peter takes advantage of the peace that ensues. And he goes to Joppa and along the coast to share the Lord Jesus because he's realized Our God has no limitations. So when he encounters a paralyzed man, he simply pronounces, Aeneas, Jesus, the Messiah, heals you. Arise and make your bed. And we're told that Aeneas 
immediately is healed and he rises and takes up his bed. You see, we are dealing with a God of no impossibilities. And perhaps Peter's faith has just been renewed by what he has seen and heard in Saul of Tarsus. We're told that those who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon began to turn to the Lord as they saw Aeneas walking, this man who had been bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. Peter then goes to Joppa, and he's with certain um, disciples come to him as he's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. And they, they tell him to come, and as he comes, they tell him about this woman. Her name is Tabitha, and she has died, and they put her up in a bed in an upper room. And she's been an incredible saint and disciple of Jesus Christ. She's been making clothes for widows. She's the type that you're just like, Lord, why would you take her? I can think of a thousand uses for her. Bring her back. And so they begin to show Peter the garments that she's made, these widows, and weep because they've lost such a close friend. Peter goes up alone into this room. It's interesting because you do read in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus sends everybody out, but the parents, Jairus and his wife, and, his, and Peter, James, and John, when he goes in to heal Jairus' daughter, who's died. Again, Elisha and Elijah in the Old Testament, uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, when they're about to raise the dead, they send everybody out of the room, and they're alone in that room. So Peter's alone. Now, I'm not sure that Peter knew she was going to arise. I think he said, well, why not try it? So he just turns to her and says, arise. You know, why not pray? Why not just open up the possibilities for God to work? This is what I think Peter is doing. I'm dealing with a God of the impossible. He can do whatever he wants. I'm alone in this room with this dead woman and Jesus. Why don't we just open it up and let Jesus do whatever he wants to do in this situation And he says, Tabitha, rise. And she opens her eyes. And I think she sees Peter and she immediately sits up like, oh, yes. Because remember, she's that type of woman. (laughs) Peter takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And then he presents her alive to the saints and widows. Why? Because there are no impossibilities with our God. There are no boundaries. There are No hindrances with our God. He is the God of the unexpected. Who would ever think that God would work in this way? In the same way, who would ever imagine that God would become a man? Who would ever imagine that God would become a man in order to save men from their sins? Who would have ever imagined that God would take the curse of sin on himself and die on a cross that we might live and never be cursed and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus became a curse for us that we could receive the blessings of his perfect, obedient life that he earned by living always in the consciousness of pleasing God. And he did this for us. It's unexpected. Who would have ever imagined? 
Now, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. And that's why I'm not God and never will be God because I'm too limited and he's unlimited. And he came up with the best plan. Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way for salvation, take this away from me. I don't think he said that for himself, but for us, that we would know that this is the only way we could be saved. If there was another way, God would have done it that way, but God always chooses the best way, and he does the unexpected. And the unexpected is always better than the expected. Always better. We must beware of putting God in a box. Why? Because as we learned last week, heaven is his footstool. Week before last. God wants to go beyond our limited ideas, plans, and resources. God wants to do in our life what only God can do. What is our part in this? Well, I've got three things to say in closing. Our part on this one, believe in the Lord. It starts with the premise that he is the almighty God. Behold, behold God. Nothing is too hard for him. He is the Lord, the great sufficient I am. He is the God of wonders without number. He is the God of all flesh. He has authority over every living and non-living thing. He is the God who sees into the heart of every man. He is the God without boundaries or impossibilities. He is the God that is uncontainable and unstoppable. Secondly, be open to whatever God wants you to do. Don't be limited in your prayers. Try. Arise. (laughs) Just see what happens. Don't be limited in your prayers. Don't be limited in your outlook. Be looking for God to work in every situation. As my friend Nancy Sylvester says, say, Lord, come and get yourself glory. Here it is. Here's the clay. Make a vessel out of it. Confess your limited expectations. Renounce your own expectations and reach out for higher and greater ways and thoughts from the Lord. Reach out. Reach out to the unlimited God and say, not my will, but yours be done. And finally, submit yourself to God's plan. Instead of trying to get God in your plans, get in God's plans. Get into the unlimited plan of God where there's no extra charge for texting. (laughs) Like Ananias, say, here I am, Lord. Like Saul, say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Be open to doing whatever he calls you to do. Yes, it might get uncomfortable. You know why? Because there's a world out there that needs to be saved, and it's not comfortable talking to strangers. But if we're comfortable, we're not in God's plan. I want to tell you that God's plan is never comfortable. It's never cushy cozy. That's in heaven. Heaven will be comfort. We have the comfort of the Holy Spirit when we're uncomfortable. But we don't have the comfort of the Holy Spirit when we're comfortable. 
Saul was to serve the God he tried to destroy. Ananias was to go to the one who was hunting for him and lay hands on him and pray. Peter was to go all over Israel. Peter was to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk and to raise a woman to life. God has a better way, a divine way. Again, and finally, let's quit making limited plans for God and get into his unlimited plans for us. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Um, Speaking of unlimited plans, I got a tetanus shot last week, and it turned into cellulitis. And so I'm on antibiotics and steroids. If I talked a little fast today, just slow down the tape, or CD, or whatever they do now. But... um, the doctor didn't want me doing this today. And I said, I have to teach the Bible study. So I'm here today, but I'm going to leave right away. Not that I don't want to talk to you all, because I do. But um, there will be women up front to pray with you. And who knows, maybe they'll say, arise. Take up your bed and walk. So let me just pray over you. And then go with God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there are no impossibilities with you. Lord, you became a man, and you lived a perfect life, and you died for us, that you might open us up to the unlimited power, unlimited plans, and unlimited glory of God. Oh, Lord, forgive us for settling in our comfort. Forgive us for living in the dominion of our fears, instead of reaching out beyond and living in the world of the divine, where no mortals exist, but only saints and sinners. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in us, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to all that you want to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.